0: Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Best. And
1: I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today.
0: In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. Today we're delighted to talk to Char Miller. Director of Environmental Analysis and the W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis and History. Welcome, Char.
1: Thank you. Uh,
2: thanks for to taking be here. the time.
1: Sure. Um, how are you adjusting to life as an online teacher during the coronavirus pandemic?
2: I will have a much better sense of it after this week. Um, I think the anticipation of it and the anxiety that comes with that anticipation is um, driving me crazy. Uh, and I miss my students terribly. So, so you know, just to see them lined up on a small screen is gonna be both weird and wonderful. Um, so I'll, I'll know next week whether this is actually something that's manageable, but I think it is. I mean, you know, it's, it's in many ways, most of us have started to do so much online that, Teaching, which is so face-to-face, is perhaps the last profession in some ways um, to fully not do that. Um, And so, particularly at a place like Pomona, where it is so intense, your relationships with students and colleagues, that um, I really, really miss that interaction. But, you know, lots of people do. So this is not particular to this place in time. How about personally? Yeah, I'm taking a lot of walks. I'm up to about 12 and a half miles a day um, at various points. Um, I actually took a six-mile walk this morning through Claremont, and there was no one out. I mean, it was it was mind-blowing. Uh, in an hour, it'll be a traffic jam because so many people are out walking their dogs always. Um, <laughs> what time it, was
1: that? I need to know. So I live in Claremont, uh, too. So I I left,
2: yeah, I left around 6.00
1: okay good we'll we'll try it's a
2: great time i walked into pomona looped around came back through the colleges and there was i actually saw five people in a two-hour walk (laughs) um so that that seems a little excessive but um you know it it's uh you got to do something um just to make sure you're still healthy in a way mentally more than physically Um, and so i hope everybody who's listening to this is also doing those kinds of things that give them pleasure
0: Good. Great tip, Cher. Um, We're going to, like they say, start from the beginning and ask you a little bit about your background. And um, we understand you grew up in the East Coast.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So how did you find your way to Claremont to (laughs) to college for undergrad for your undergrad studies?
2: Well, um, well, it actually, um, though I didn't remember it at the time or I did, but I didn't really think about it this way. My parents had actually. Uh, I was born in St. Louis uh, and within a couple of months, my family had moved from St. Louis to Palo Alto where my dad was working in, in the city. And I've seen all of these wonderful photos and videos uh, of me as a baby toddling around with a hose. So hence my interest in water. <laughs> I am um, Setting fires too? Uh, no, <laughs> best I know not. Um, but, but you know, it, that was sort of a charmed period in my life because like what did I know it was always sunny uh and then we moved (laughs) to Connecticut where it was always not sunny um and uh you know I I was very fortunate that um that I had a set of siblings I have four sisters who are wonderful human beings. Uh, Although I'm sure they didn't think that way about me. I was the only boy (laughs) totally treated differently, uh, male privilege everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. including a story my mother told that I half believe that she slept much better once I was born. Like I could have gotten out of the crib to defend her in some fashion. Um, but, but, you know, um, Part of coming to California was, as many people did in the late 60s, early 70s, was as a form of reinvention. And I had gone to boarding school in Connecticut. And and in fact, this is my 50th anniversary of that that process, 50th reunion, which got canceled, unfortunately. Um, But I didn't come immediately. I actually went to NYU because as I've been flipping through my letters from my mom, I said to her, look, everything is happening in the cities. I need to be there. That's where the issues are. Um, and I'd got, gotten very comfortable with New York City from where I used to get in a train when I was 12 and 13 and just go. Um, no one in their right minds would allow a child to do that today. Um, so, so spent a year at NYU, um, mm. which was an absolute disaster as a university, um, but an extraordinary <laughs> experience uh, in terms of music. And I was in music clubs and at the Fillmore East all the time and realized that, A, I was wasting somebody's money, uh, wasting the college's energy and my time. And so went off and worked for a year, um, flipping burgers, selling ski equipment. Um, what was the other thing? Oh, I was a shipper receiver for a chemical plant, which was an absolute gas. Uh, most of the people there were Vietnam veterans. And boy, did I learn things I could never have learned otherwise uh, from them. Um, but I also learned one thing very quickly about six weeks into this grand experiment of being not in college. It was like, damn, college was really fun. Uh, you know, there were things I could do and things I should learn. And so I started applying and my sister had actually applied to Pitzer. Um, one of my sisters had applied in whatever year that was, uh, sometime in the mid sixties, uh, decided not to go. Um, but I remembered that and I went, hmm, California that's where people change. So that's what I should do because I heard all the music. I knew what was happening. Um, And so uh, drove my 1956 Volkswagen Bug across the country. Um, It broke down in Bridgeport, California, in the Eastern Sierra. It just could not take another mountain. Um, And so my wonderful introduction to Claremont was hitchhiking in an 18-wheeler from Bridgeport, to Indian Hill Boulevard and walking up Indian Hill Boulevard to Pitzer and it was like okay like I made it (laughs) you survived (laughs) I survived and you know there were a couple of things that immediately were phenomenal to me about Claremont one of which was that those mountains were mind-blowing to me. They are still the St. Gabriels. Uh, they're not like any mountains I'd ever been to in the East Coast, uh, which were a lot smaller. Um, and and uh, these were a lot more rugged, a lot more dangerous, but God, they're beautiful. Um, and that was part of it. The other was being a pitzer in its infancy. Um, when it had just flipped from being a women's college to co-ed, and so I think I was the third class of men, mm. um, meant that it had not made the transition um, and fully. Um, And that was also important for me because I was in the first class of my boarding school to introduce women to an all-male boarding environment and I got an immediate sense of what it must have been like for the women in my class. And since we're on our 50th anniversary, we've been talking about that a lot with them and <laughs> uh, we did not cover ourselves with glory, let us just say. Um, and so, you know, it was a really interesting place to be. And Claremont was a really exciting intellectual environment. And I was taking classes at CGU, uh, then Claremont Graduate School. Um, and and my some of my mentors were at Scripps, who I adored, still am in close contact with. So there was like this intellectual ferment at, in all of the colleges that I was able to, luckily. Um, tap into. I didn't take classes at Harvey Mudd because I'm not that smart um, and decided that when I walked into a Pomona class and you will forgive me Pomona faculty but I walked into seminars in which faculty stood up and lectured and "Eh, I don't think that's what a seminar is supposed to be Uh, but I did take classes at CMC and Scripps um, and obviously at Pitzer um, and formed not only lifelong friends but also the realization that The academic life (laughs) was something beguiling. Um, And I walked into Dan Horowitz, who was a professor at Scripps in American history, in my October of my junior year, uh, so 73. And I said, how did you become you? Because I really (laughs) like what you guys do. I don't know if I can do it, but I really, you know. And, and, you know, Dan was coy. He said, well, you know, you you got to work your butt off, and and you know maybe you can do it. Um, but but it was also you know in the air at Pitzer um, that part of it is that you um, think about the world in broad ways, and that's clearly part of its ethos still today. Uh, but then you try to figure out what's your place in that world, and what do you do best? Um, and you know part of it was. To get to graduate school you had to have a language and so I went to Santa Cruz for a summer to um, learn French or learn French more more effectively um, including playing soccer with all of our French teachers who were all French uh, which was a blast um, but but what they also would take me aside and say well what are you doing like what do you want to do and I said I really I think I really want to teach Um, and they were really generous um, these folks and and sort of sort of said yeah this is if that's what you want to do these are the things you need to do which was confirming what I had heard at CMC and Pitzer and Scripps from faculty at each of those places so I got to graduate school um, and totally realized that I loved graduate school, <laughs> which is not what everybody says. My advisor was awful, but I loved graduate school because he basically said, here's 500 books you need to read and I'll see you in two years. <laughs> he went, oh my God, this is so fun. Um, and so I was a very nerdy guy for two years uh, and read like crazy um, and worked in the Library of Congress to write papers and stuff. And um, it, it really gave me an appreciation for what an intellectual life could look like. But more to the point, and and this is really crucial, um, I realized how bad many of those teachers were at Johns Hopkins. They were terrible. Uh, Brilliant scholars couldn't teach their way out of a paper bag. They might not even know they were in a paper bag. Um, And I realized that I hadn't paid attention to that in Claremont. They were just... There and you know, not everybody was great and I knew that but they they gave you things to read they asked you really important questions Um, And as much as graduate school was intellectually um, Challenging and fulfilling it also was deadening in the sense that you had to become a specialist And then within that a specialist of a specialist of a specialist and I realized that where Claremont you blew out wide because that's what you were asked to do. Graduate school brought you down into a very thin slice of life um, that you needed to know, and I get that, that's part of the profession. Um, But I couldn't wait to get out of graduate school so that I could sort of, like an accordion, flow back out again. Um, and so, you know, Judy and I hopped around, we, we, um, she went to graduate school at Cornell, so I went up with her, which was great, so I could just write, and I didn't have to deal with the nuttiness of graduate school. Uh, we moved to Miami for my first job, and our first child, as it turned out, was born there, um, moved then to Trinity University in San Antonio, where Gary Cates was, who was a dear friend at Pitzer, um, and he said, there's a job at Trinity. You should apply and then totally backed off of the search. Like you couldn't be involved in it, understandably, but I got the job, which was great. Um, And so where we used to live in a house on Indian Hill together, we were now a half a mile apart in a small residential area near Trinity. Um, and today in Claremont, we're about a half a mile apart. So it's been, oh, a, wow. you know, as a biographer, some biographer is going to go, oh, this is too good. Uh, <laughs> let's go do this story. Uh, but but that's also part of it because Gary was, um, even in school, even in college, was probably the most astute, um, not just thinker about the world, but also thinking about how to be a teacher. I mean, he was already teaching when he was an undergraduate. Um, and I remember watching him going, my God, this guy's ridiculously good. So that's right pretty much why I followed him around, right? So I could figure out what I was doing. Um, but but it worked out very nicely. Um, and so, so coming back to Claremont, which was something that Judy and I had talked about when we were undergraduates here in our senior year, it's like, a kind of a nice place It'd be kind of fun to come back um it took 30 something years but you know okay that's okay um and so we got back in 2007 when gary was dean and he said you know that you could come for a year And it's like okay that sounds fun and then you could stay for a second year it's like okay i could do that too um in part because everybody in the history department took a leave and so it's like okay i'll, I'll fill into <laughs> those positions um but you know the other piece about coming back um, and full-time coming back was that it completely gave me um, a regenerative experience that I didn't even know I needed. Um, I could have stayed in San Antonio and loved every moment of it, Um, but what I've done here is to dump every single course I ever taught in my career prior to coming to San, uh, to Claremont um, and totally reinvented things. Um, and that reinvention, I didn't know, A, it was possible, B, I needed it, or three, that it would be as much fun as it's been. Um, but also, you know, the students in Claremont, like the kids I had in, in San Antonio, they just are driven and they push you like crazy, uh, which is a little daunting at first, and then you realize, you're learning right along with them. And that also changed the way I taught um, so that the seminars actually are seminars and I don't lecture uh, anymore in any class um, because it seems to me that this, this, this way of learning uh, of face-to-face hands-on in depth, uh, lots of advising, lots of off campus, you know, coffees or whatever is um, uh, such A privilege but it's also probably the most effective way to do the work that we do as teachers which is why the quarantine is so hard (laughs) because it's robbing me of that I feel like a vampire plug where I sort of plug into my students and I get all of their energy and now what do I do like who do I take that from Um, and so um, but it's been it's God it's been a joy an absolute joy being back in Claremont.
1: So let's let's talk about that reinvention a little bit. You, yeah. you started off in history and urban studies, is that yeah. right? Yeah. And how did you move from there to environmental analysis? Are the two related?
2: Somehow? They are related. Um, when I approach environmental issues, I approach them um, as an historian, sort of thinking about change over time and how nature and human beings have interacted with one another over time. And those interactions have changed radically. Um, across the millennia, Um, and so that seems reasonable. One of the other things that really um, I had started to do in San Antonio was to write a lot about the city as a place um, and what its environmental and social issues were tied to that place, so I'm writing a book right now Um, On a massive flood that tore through San Antonio and then revealed all of these social issues, which would have always been there But when you have a disaster you suddenly see them as we did with Katrina and other events you go Oh, right. These aren't necessarily the nicest places to live and there are people who bear disproportionately the burdens of living in those environments um, and I've been, honestly, I've been working on this book for 30 years. So it's got to come out because the, cent, the centennial <laughs> is next year. Um, but the part of what was interesting to me when I moved here is that those same issues are the same issues here. I could take those ways of thinking about environments and and cities and the interplay between urban spaces and the natural systems in which they're located. So in San Antonio, it's the San Antonio River Valley, which floods all the time. In L.A., we get floods, we get mudslides, we get fires, we have earthquakes. Um, Everything is about the natural world um, that we periodically forget we inhabit. Uh, until it reminds us terribly, like this virus, um, that we live in a biological world or we live in a world in which um, earthquakes, the earth actually moves and shakes our, shakes us. Um, and so um, I have to say, by moving to Los Angeles, my, my writing, both as a scholar and as someone who loves to write for LA Times or whatever, um, I've never lacked for stories (laughs) because those things are like every single day in in our face um and if there's a way to use the historian's gaze that is to say that yes these issues are issues and so when we think about this pandemic let's think about other pandemics and what happened in those landscapes and to those people and you know what what and why things occurred the way they did, then let's do that. Um, and I think that's also, I would say, it's something that I learned really at Pitzer and, and, and truthfully in my boarding school, where I, there was a minister who, um, as my classmates have all been attesting over the last weeks, we, we would never have the deep conversations that we're having now had we actually only met at reunion, but everyone is acknowledging that Tom Hansen, who was the minister there, had really given us this notion of a social responsibility um, as children of privilege, to be sure, but also as brains that we should be utilizing to better the humanity of this, to better the world at some level. Um, and so I can draw a straight line. Um, it's convoluted, but fairly straight that goes from those various earlier experiences to the place now where um, for me, and for many of my peers in the environmental analysis program across the five colleges, really what we're doing is talking about the environment in a, as a landscape uh, that's contested, that is unjust in its ways, um, and that part of what we need to be thinking about is not just simply how to, for example, preserve the San Gabriel Mountains, which we must do, um, but also to make them accessible to people for whom they are not accessible. So so some of this is about nature, yes, but also about the human interaction with that. And those are big changes that, that, you know, I had an inkling of maybe 15 years ago, but having been here and listened to my colleagues and listened to my students um, and thought, more or less effectively about these problems um, that I've been able to write. And I've God, I have loved that.
0: Char, speaking of nature and landscape and relationships, you've had a long relationship with the U.S. Forest Service.
2: Yeah.
0: How did that happen? Mm. And how has that kind of real world experience affected your
2: academic work? Wow, that's a great question. Um, So... That actually comes straight out of the first paper I ever wrote in graduate school, which again, a through line of sorts. It was about Gifford Pinchot, who was the first chief of the Forest Service. Um, But the question I was asking about him had less to do with, much less to do with the Forest Service and much more to do with the kind of Question that was interesting for biographers in the in, in the early 1980s, which is why does someone of Pinchot's class status, and he was extraordinarily wealthy, or his family was, why did he become a reformer? Why did he think that his job was not to make more money, because he didn't, but to do good work, in this case, invent a profession forestry to create a forest school at Yale to become the first chief of the Forest Service to be a public servant uh, for the for the entire for his entire adult life um, and it's a good question don't 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 miss that but but it was not the question that ultimately would lead me to understand him um, and after I wrote the paper I realized okay <laughs> there's way more to this guy than you imagine. But, you know, I had another project that actually grew out of my senior thesis at Pitzer that I wanted to write. Um, and so that became my dissertation and first book. Um, but once I did that, I was like, wait, wait, wait. There was this guy, and you were reading about him, and you were spending time with his papers in the Library of Congress, and oh, by the way, he was a Republican, and oh, by the way, Ronald Reagan is in office, and oh, by the way, this administration, the Reagan administration, is nothing like the administration and sort of had none of the environmental chops that Pinchot had. So maybe if you go back to him, you can actually be using him as a... As a what, a metaphor, a foil uh, for the contemporary world in which you live that you can use Pinchot to talk about what Republicans once believed um, and what we might want to think through more carefully. Um, But that meant all of a sudden that I needed to know something about the forest service, about which I knew absolutely nothing. And I'm embarrassed to say, but but I suspect I'm not alone in this. I skied in various mountains in New England and the Green Mountain National Forest and the White Mountain National Forest and never knew I was in either place, right? I was just on a mountain and I was skiing. I had no idea. Uh, I suspect there are a lot of people who go ski in Colorado and don't know that virtually every single mountain is actually on a national forest property. Um, but once I started realizing that, I I somehow reached out to her, was reached out to by um, the executive director of Gifford Pinchot's old home. It's called Gray Towers. It's in Milford, Pennsylvania. And if anybody listening to this has a chance to go, go see what John Muir called a cottage. It is not a cottage. It is an astonishing house, um, mansion. Um, So they asked me up for a talk at the Forest Service headquarters in Washington, D.C., and I went, oh, this is fun. Uh, And totally knew, had no idea what I was doing. Uh, But anyway, I gave this talk. And from that has, and that was in like, let's say, 88, 89. And for the last 30 years have been um, working with the Forest Service in ways that I could never have imagined. Um, And most particularly working with them on leadership training. Another thing, One would be shocked to find me doing, um, as I am. Um, But but again, as the historian, I get to come into these workshops and and lead workshops in which I help new employees, middle-level employees, and senior employees understand um, the context of their work. Right? They're doing a job on a daily basis, and they've got to do X, Y, and Z, but they don't have time. They can't possibly have time to pull back and look at how that work fits within a larger thread of human existence in the case of this agency. So w- what I've been able to do, and I bless Pinchot every single day, is he gave me a way to think about an institution and how institutions function, and then take that point and use that as a way to talk about leadership across time. And so not to beat this horse too much to death, but what's really interesting is you can, as I'm doing, I pluck out four or five moments in, in the agency's time in which major leadership decision-making occurred. Sometimes they did it right. Sometimes they blew up in their faces. And the point is for people who want to be leaders is look, Right? You've got to be aware of these larger issues uh, when you make decisions which seem to you to be small, but actually you're going to have large ramifications. Um, and that's, you know, that public work has really fed the way in which I write about the agency, it's still with a critical lens, um, but that's also part of it. It's teaching. Everything about this is teaching. Um, And so I can go into a room and talk to them about the fact that almost 50% of what we call the national forests and grasslands actually came from ancestral or treaty lands of the Native Americans. Um, There's a great new story about land-grant universities where 11 million acres have been expropriated. I mean, everybody was expropriating those, so the very foundational institutions, the Park Service, the Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, Nash, uh, Fish and Wildlife Refuge, all of that stuff, a big chunk of it all came from lands that were once um, managed by, um, were ancestrally based in um, the Tongva or whomever. Um, and, you know, that's a story that they appreciate learning because it means when they walk into a room with tribal entities, they're a lot more savvy about their own role in that process, um, and you know it's helped me enormously to sort of go, oh yeah <laughs> like like I'm not complicit in this process uh, and that's been that's been I've loved that too
1: char um, recently you've focused a great deal um, I guess it's certainly your most visible uh, focus mm. to the outside world uh, on wildfires yeah. Um, why do you think we so we have so many fires today and why have they be, why do they seem to become so deadly?
2: Well, I think, God, that's a great <laughs> if I had exactly the answer to that, I, you know, <laughs> I'd be a very smart guy. <laughs> um, I would say there are a couple of things going on. Um, and let's use Southern California as an example for other places. But obviously what happened in Australia this past winter for them is. Um, this past year, um, has has really sort of made our story look tiny by comparison. Um, But, you know, we've got since the 1980s, the American Southwest from El Paso, west to L.A., and north from there has gone through, has been effectively drying out. So the fires that started to erupt in New Mexico, Arizona, California, Colorado, Utah, beginning in the 1980s and 1990s, many Forest Service scientists, who I get the great privilege to to meet and read, um, have been pointing out that what those fires really are, are land conversion fires. And so we're seeing the Sonoran and the Chihuahuan Desert moving north. So, A, there's big issues involved with that. Um, But that drying out is not only led to the desiccation Um, and desertification of parts of the Southwest, uh, but also has huge implications for fire, to be sure, but also water resources. Because as it dries out, and the Colorado, which has been such a huge source for Southern California, let alone Arizona and other places, um, we've got this this tangle of issues that are emerging. Um, And I think that's part of what also makes those wildfires so um, large, because they are monstrous, um, that, that, that they're coming at a rate and over a, um, a period of time that is unusual. 12 months now is pretty much the norm. Um, depending on the year, and this year, that's not been the case because we actually got some rain. Um, but but over the long span, so again, another 40-year span, um, we're seeing this dramatic change in the climate that we know is related to global warming. Um, that change in the climate is leading to pressures on water resources, on, on forced management, on chaparral management, and fire is one of the mechanisms by which these things are managed by nature and us. Um, and then... To get at the intersection for me that's actually the most interesting is that it's the Southwest that has grown the most over the last 40 years outside of places like Florida and Texas. It's just ballooned in size. And so now we not only have more people demanding more water, demanding more land, demanding more housing. But where that housing tends to end up is up in these marginal areas or what once were marginal, they're not in the periphery any longer. So if you look at Southern California and you think about Simi Valley or Silmar or up to Castaic um, into Ventura County, um, those areas in and around the San Gabriel Mountains that have gone up in flames over the last 10 years, we're also seeing this story as not just fire, but people in fire and people being in places where they didn't used to live. So if it burned, who cared? Well, now we care because it's the structures that are burning and people who are dying. So, you know, to get back to your question, um, the danger is uh, is so manifold in its consequences about how we have chosen to live in this landscape and the Australians are asking themselves the exact same set of questions. Uh, They're doing it in Israel and elsewhere um, because these are all Mediterranean ecosystems. They all look alike. They burn alike. They, you know, different seasons because of depending on where they are, but, but um, that's a big chunk of the world's population trying to figure out how to live with fire in ways we've never had to because we never had seven and a half billion people on the planet. So, you know, from my vantage point, um, trying to think about those big pictures even when there's a small fire in Silmar, say, or in Ventura, it wasn't small, but or, or the campfire, which was also not small, um, gets me back to the Forest Service and how it manages the land. It takes me into questions of water, which I have loved working on in Southern California, because like, who doesn't? Uh, we don't have a lot of it, so we got to think about it. Um, and it also leads me right back to the urban study stuff that I did 25 years ago uh, in San Antonio. Um, because in the end, all of those natural resources are as crucial as they can be. Um, and we have to learn to live within those, that bounty, because it is bountiful if you manage yourself well. And if you manage yourself well, then you start to think about conservation as a principle, uh, a principle that Roosevelt and Muir and Pinchot and others in the late 19th century, um, advocated in a way that, um, was radical for their time. We've re-radicalized it in different ways, but I don't want to miss those progenitors because they offered some very important ways of thinking about how to control our economic greed um, to maintain economic stability, uh, a message that we need today.
0: Char, you've you've written a lot about this and feel strongly about this. What can we do about people building and sometimes building over and over again in places that are prone to fire?
2: Ah, So, um, we now go from the issue, in a sense, the fire, to the policy that allowed the fire to occur effectively. Um, And it's hard for planning commissions and zoning boards to own up to the fact that their willingness to, as a default, promote growth because growth is good, um, into places which they know because they can't not know this. Um, it's not a good idea to build is one of the conundrums that I've been trying, and and I'm not alone in this, been trying to, um, articulate in a way that makes sense such that mayors and city councils and, um, commissions of one form or another, at the county level, at the city level, at the local level, at the state level, um, begin to understand that just because with your right hand you sign a bill that says, yes, let's, you know, we're okaying this, this new subdivision, and then you pay for it on the left hand through... Increased cost to fire departments and first responders because you have to rescue those people and you don't see the connection between the two actions That's what I think um, a large number of us have been trying to argue for the last maybe a decade or so um, But here too is something that for me um, I realized Fairly quickly after moving here, is here, like, that's exactly what San Antonio finally figured out. Here's a city that floods all the time. And people lived in watersheds and in floodplains uh, because county commissioners said it was okay to do so. And then sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s, after yet another flood ripped down another watershed that took out a number of houses, people didn't die, but the houses just got devastated. The county decided that actually it was gonna pull out of its own budget money that, you know, not do a bond, but pull money out of its own budget to start to buy up the houses in the watershed. I went, ah, there's the answer for Southern California. Way more expensive, to be sure. But why not think about that as an analogy that um, you buy up water, you buy up watersheds so that people can't live in danger why wouldn't you do the same thing with fire zones? And since we know where the fire zones are, CAL FIRE has got these great maps that sort of lay out where they think um, fires are going to be. Go after those lands first before they burn. Buy them up, pull them into a county or a city ownership, um, much as Claremont has done. And, and in ways, the Pomona College has contributed to that process by donating Evie Canyon, 463 acres, um, to the city with a codicil that said, anytime you try to sell it, it comes right back to us. Um, so that you, what you did in that process, what Pomona did, was to pull 21 houses, potential houses, out of the fire zone. When Johnson Pasture and all of these other Claremont Wilderness Park areas were developed, it was hundreds of potential homes that were not built. The advantage of that is Claremont Wilderness Park can burn. And it probably will burn again. It burned in 07 um, Oh, 03, excuse me, um, and it'll probably burn again at some other point. What it won't do is burn houses. And that's part of the, that's the, that's the balancing act that you're trying to figure out. Um, and so the counter to that is that, or the response to that is, if we're not going to continue to move out and create low-density housing in dangerous places, then what do you do? You build up in the valleys. And you build greater density because when you build greater density, you also build um, a customer base for mass transit and you get people out of cars as you know, effectively as you can. Um, and Claremont is going through an argument about that right now with Village South um, as a potential housing development just south of the railroad tracks, which to my mind is like the moonshot. This is such a great opportunity to demonstrate what Claremont was when it began as a transit oriented development. We would not be here without the Santa Fe Railroad that bought that land and sold that land. And everything was about that rail line. And so everybody lived compactly down there. So, um, you know, we're not straying from our history. In fact, we're recapitulating that history by building up higher density along that exact same rail track uh, with new housing, new shopping on West Village, and then this would be South Village that would intersect in a way. Um, so, you know, all of these things are interconnected. If you, if you want to shut down building in one place, then you're going to have to build somewhere else. And if you do that, let's do that the best way we possibly can so that the life that people live, um, is as rich as it can be. So I, all of these things to me are in ways that, that are so interconnected, um, and are, I would say logical, except it's me saying it, so it may not be that logical, um, but, but um, are ways that when I get to work with my students on these projects um, that they're working on is to see the way in which they bring all of these ideas that they've had from all sorts of faculty in Claremont and from their peers and start to reimagine a landscape whether it's in Claremont or in LA or wherever it may be. Um, And boy, is that fun Um, because it means that I think um, that whatever they do in their lives, they've actually been able to take the ideas that they have and apply them in some way, principled way to um, resolve. And what else are we here for? And I think that's as true for us as faculty as it is for the students.
1: Sure, let's, let's shift from fire to another big concern of yours, uh, water, water yeah. policy. Yeah. Um, you've written a lot about it, including a book about the Ogallala Aquifer. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about water politics in America today. What should people know about it?
2: <laughs> well, um, three years ago, I would have given you a different answer. Um, current, the current administration, um, is quite interested in undoing every bit of environmental regulation imaginable. And so, uh, and water policy is a perfect example of this in which now, um, polluters have only have to voluntarily report their emissions to the EPA. Um, that, you know, arsenic and water is okay for us because, because it is apparently. It's good for you. Um, it's good for you. Um, it's natural. <laughs> and, um, you know, they they will um, make issues with and have been pounding the table on questions of salmon and dams in ways that earlier administrations were, in some cases, more careful about, not always. So I would say... Um, there are a couple of things, one of which is the federal policy has obviously moved dramatically in opposition to the kinds of legislation that Gifford Pinchot, when he was governor of Pennsylvania, enacted. Clean Water Act, the first Clean Water Act in the United States came out of his office in Pennsylvania in the 1920s. Um, that, that you don't see any longer. Right, that's something that you undermine in a way that I find deeply troubling. Partly, be, largely because of the downstream consequences of that are going to be felt by people who cannot insulate them from those toxins. Um, and so, this is a privileged and powered position that is going to devastate um, those who are often on the margins. Um, having said that, there are still ways in which individual states control their water um, any water that isn't transborder that is to say as california's is not um, all of that water that falls here flows to the ocean it doesn't flow to some other state uh, the C- colorado is a complicated place um, as we know but but even there um, you know california has the capacity as a state as does washington and oregon and those that that don't abide by the president's decisions. Um, They are still responsible for clean water for their citizens. And so here's where federalism um, has a role, has a huge role. Uh, States rights in a sense has always been water. So for example, um, one of the little known facts that it took me a long time to figure out um, is that any water that falls on a national forest, which is federal property, Belongs to the states, just like any wildlife on a national forest belongs to the states. So, um, whatever the Forest Service does, it has to do in conjunction with the states. Um, and so, in this case, you know, the Sierra Mountains are a huge reservoir uh, for the state of California on the eastern slope and the western slope. Um, and it's all national forest, or virtually all of it is national forest. And yet, the Forest Service. Is not the player here, it's the states that are at the, in this case, the state of California, that's the determining factor. So I would say that we are in a pretty um, non progressive, and I will use that with a capital P version of what environmental regulation should look like. In fact, in this administration's eyes, there should be none. Um, The states have the chance and the role, and I think the responsibility of being the bulwark against that national incentive. Um, And some days states will do it and some states won't. And that's one of the reasons why Theodore Roosevelt um, was insistent upon creating a national environmental set of policies because he didn't want individual states necessarily to do things to their citizens that other states weren't, right? That you can't protect some and then protect others or not protect others. Um, And so, you know, there was a, um, there was a commitment to the commonwealth, as that word actually means, commonwealth, um, that we all own a piece of that pie and that we all um, have access to it on the one hand but also should be controlling that access um, and have that across across what's now 50 states um, as this administration has shown with ventilators and masks it doesn't believe in that policy that there is a federal perspective that should reign and a and a sort of transfer of funding to allow all states to get the ventilators and the masks and surgical equipment that they need to help us survive this particular pandemic. Um, and I think I think what the pandemic is showing us is that for all their faults, and there were many of them, people like Pinchot and your um, those in the FDR administration and 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 blessedly many Republicans in the 50s and 60s who fought like crazy for environmental protection, they were right. This administration is wrong. Um, and I think part of what we need to do as historians and as thinkers about this kind of stuff is like, okay, if you know that's the case, and that's the context in which this is taking place, then it's up to us to uh, blow that particular whistle.
0: Char, you mentioned earlier how much you, en- you enjoy working with your students yeah. and envisioning what the world could be. Yeah. Could you tell us about some of the projects that you're you're working with your students? Um, we have a, many of our prospective students who are very, very much interested in the environment and yeah, and course. issues
2: of sustainability. Of course. Can you,
0: can you paint the picture a little bit for us?
2: Sure. Oh, great. Thank you. Yes. I can go back into the classroom for a moment. <laughs> um, so let me tell you about some projects and, and theses, um, that have taken place over the last couple of years. So in the environmental analysis program, the students have two senior capstones. I think it's the only program department on campus that does. In the fall, students write a single authored uh, senior thesis, their project, their question, their issue, their resolution, Which and they have you know close reading from me and others um, as they go through it. And then we flip the script in the senior year Uh, senior spring semester where they do a group project with a real client on a real issue that they help to identify and thus have to resolve in three months or whatever the time frame is. And the purpose of doing that is uh, twofold, one of which is they have um, the chance to do serious intellectual research at a pretty intense level because it's only a semester and they hate it in September and they love it in December um, because they're done. Um, And also because the work that we do in the world is always in group and now as it turns out remotely. Um, And so you, 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 hone your skills, those individual skills that you then bring into a group setting. And the first question that we ask them in the senior seminar, which is this clinic project, um, or that, that Jeff Groves, Harvey Mudd, and I do in our Building Los Angeles classes, like when you sit in your group, the first thing you talk about are the skills you bring to the table. And some kids have digital skills and some kids have drawing skills and some kids have one set of, you know, analytical frameworks that they really like using and could be useful in this process. Um, but they have to identify it. And it's so much fun to listen in. It's like, Oh yeah, you do recognize this. You do have skills. Excellent. Uh, check that box. Um, but I would also say pragmatically what that does And I find this out every spring and summer when I start getting calls um, from potential employers is they're blown away by the fact that the students can speak so persuasively about their own abilities. Like, I did this thesis, and here's what this thesis was about. And secondly, can then talk about when asked, well, what do you like as a team player? Oh, well, I'll tell you what I'm like as a team player. I'm on a group right now. We're working on this project, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, So that's a thrill. That, for me, is the payback or actually it's when I get to pay them back and give them the recommendations that they so clearly deserve. But some of the projects um, and and theses, I think that really speak to these questions of of environmental sustainability broadly imagined, right? It's gonna look different from from one group to another. Um, In building Los Angeles last spring, um, the project is you've got to rehab or redo or rebuild something in, on the campuses. The, I won't say it was it. It was a mind blowing project that one group did, cross campus group did um, about Bixby Plaza, that space in front of Frary, and also Walker Lounge because they didn't like that either. Uh, and basically, in one month. They completely redesigned Big Plaza to make it a place where people congregated and did that by sort of extending Walker over those. God awful steps, right? That you know, who, you know, nobody walks up them in any sense. So they took that over as a cafe, and they and they created a two tier cafe that flowed into Bixby Plaza. They redesigned the whole interior of Walker, um, and we gave them free reign to do whatever they wanted to do, and it was astonishing um and they were highly skilled with arc gis and others so the designs were just beautifully done i showed them to bob robinson he went ho, ho, ho who's the vice president right for facilities and you know we'll see what if anything happens but i'm less concerned about that than um the fact that we said what do you want to do and they came up with this genius design other groups took um the Mudcraw Drangle, which lies between, I think that's what it's called, between um, the library and Garrison Theater, which is this big, vast, empty space where McAllister Religious Center is also. And they went, why not build six C buildings of some sort? One of them built a, a rec center with a... F- I think it was a 30-foot climbing tower, um, multi-tiered. I mean, it's just beautiful. So they were thinking about the worlds that they would like to occupy, right? They wanted to build something that would say to them, man, you had a great time in Claremont, but if you had this, even better, right? So it's, it's fantasy on the one hand, but really cool on the other. Um, some of the really interesting theses in the fall last year um, revolved around um, environmental sustainability, so Jordan Grimaldi of Pomona, who soon won't be a Pomona grad, did this really deep dive into, um, what it means to build sustainably and used various ways by which she looked at, um, organizations that were trying to think this out way beyond lead, way beyond lead, like really thinking more, more, more in depth about this process. Um, other groups were looking at um uh, and other individuals were looking at at ways in which they could um sort of rethink justice and what that means and we've actually had some brilliant um, theses over the last 10 years in which students took questions of environmental justice And looked at small communities, in one case, an island communities off of British Columbia, um, in other cases, um, in East L.A. um, And in third cases, looking, actually, there was a a paired thesis in which a student looked at Ontario and East L.A. And she had spent time at a lot in both places, working in both places, um, and wrote this beautiful um, thesis that sort of looked at what it means to be... um, in a largely Latinx community where you're trying to build urban gardens, as both places were, did it very differently, uh, trying to build housing, but did it very differently, and you're separated by 30 miles. Like, how does that happen? And what does that mean? Um, And, you know, she is among a number of students who took those skills, and this will be really interesting for incoming students to know, or maybe just their parents at this point. Um, But California has this extraordinary postgraduate um, experience called Civic Spark, which is an AmeriCorps federally funded entity. Um, It has jobs all over the state and we have students all over the state who come right out of the EA program with all of these really interesting skills as scientists, social scientists, and humanists, um, and they are immediately plugged into housing issues in San Bernardino, um, housing issues, again, uh, Vanessa Sanchez, who I was just speaking of, who did this Ontario East LA, she's working for Civic Spark, a script student working for Civic Spark in East LA. Um, Frank Lyles, who graduated three years ago, for the last two years, has been basically the only planner Shasta County has. And he got there, he didn't know anything about planning. But Frank's a really smart kid who can run up steep mountains, by the way, but also learning curves. And, and he went, all right. So, like, so they said, we don't know where actually all of our water mains are. So Frank has been diving, deep diving, literally deep diving, to try to figure this out and to map it. And so that a small rural community... Has a better understanding of what it means to be literally sustainable. Like, how do we, how can you not be, how could you be sustainable if you can't find your own resources? Um, and so, if those are huge challenges. Uh, kids have worked in green bike programs in Seattle and Portland through Civic Spark or like minded organizations in those states. Um, and it's a, it's from my vantage point, you sort of think about a four year career at a college. And, you know, some of it you have to be intentional about because we ask you to be, uh, like, what's your major? Who's your advisor? What are you studying? Let's figure out these requirements. But others of it is to sort of think through also the ways in which you can use the resources of this institution um, to make it easier for you to imagine yourself in different ways. So, for example, um, take the SURF program, the Summer Undergraduate Research Program, which is I am so jealous that that exists. I love it for our students, but like, why wasn't that around when I was in college? Um, And really savvy students have figured out with some prodding that if you apply for it for your junior, senior summer, the college is paying you to do the research for your senior thesis. And so you really are writing a two semester thesis that's underwritten by the college it, those are really rich because they've had that experience. And that's true at the other colleges also because we get kids from all five of the colleges in the EA program. And the other thing it teaches them is that there are, there's money around and you've got to figure out how to get it. And someone will give it to you if you write a really good proposal. And that proposal will actually help you figure out yourself, which is really what this is about. Like not just that I have skills, but why do I have these skills? And why do these things make sense to me in ways that other things don't? So for me, history made sense from the second grade on. It just was the way I wanted to think. Math, not so much, but history, absolutely. So so know that about yourself, right? Figure out what those things are that sing to you um, and learn how to sing better. And I think that's part of what Pomona has done so, so, so well for its students. Um, which means that when I walk into a classroom, scared out of my mind, because I've got a, like, I get a game every second, not just you know ha- happenstance, um, that, that I'm going to encounter kids who've not only done the reading, they've thought around the reading, and they've done other reading that talks to that reading, even though they didn't know that when they walked into the classroom. And so all of a sudden, the things that explode at the table are about the entire curriculum and not just this piece of it. And I think that's that's what we're really trying to do. And it could be an environmental analysis. It could be in math. It could be in physics. It could be in art. It could be in English. It could be anywhere. It happens everywhere.
1: Sure. One last question. Sure. Um, um, you do a lot of outreach through the media. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you about why you do that. But in particular, I'm curious about something I read in an interview you gave where you said, well, you cited one of the reasons um Uh, for trying to reach a wider audience always was your mom. Yeah. Uh, Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. So (laughs) um, when I gave my mother my first academic article, (laughs) because my mother was not always the nicest people, um, she said, who'd you write this for? I went, well, really for me and, you know, Maybe five other people. And she said, "Why are you doing that? Why is that the only audience you're trying to reach?" And I said, "Well, see, this is there's this profession, and I got to do this if I want to, you know, re- retain, maintain myself in it. Um, but I actually also took her seriously um, and began to imagine that there might be other audiences that I could talk to. And again, I give all credit to San Antonio as a place." Um, be, I, be, It might have happened elsewhere, but I happened to live there. Um, And I was starting to think about all of these local issues that had deep histories behind them of social injustice and housing problems and flooding problems and the like. Um, And I could write about them for my academic peers. But I was thinking of my mother in that way um, that, well, maybe there were other audiences if I wrote differently. And so in 1985, as newspapers started to open up what they now call op ed columns, right? The possibility of different voices appearing on their pages. Um, I don't know how, why, uh, but I I wrote a piece. I sent it in. um, It got totally devastated. I said, yeah, this is great. And then the copy that came back was totally different. I was looking (laughs) at it and I put it side by side with the one I wrote and I went, okay, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? And I'm sitting there going, your students probably say the same thing to you about you. Like, what, have, what is he looking at that I'm not looking at? It? Man, that was a total change in both how I wrote and also how I taught writing. Mm-hmm. That, that it really, I mean, I bless those editors of the San Antonio Light, which is now defunct and the San Antonio Express. As an they, editor, I can say editors are great. Editors are great. Right? They, <laughs> everybody needs an editor. Everybody needs, I totally right. So it was like this light bulbs went off, like not just inverted you know, paragraphs and like the the sort of inverted form of it, but but also the words you choose and how you do it and um, the way in which you try to convey a story in a moment and use that moment to play to larger issues, um, which I kind of knew. And actually, I just went back and looked at my high school journalism for sports and I do the exact same thing. I'd totally forgotten about it. And I'm reading it going, God, you told the story, and then you built off of that story, and you did this other thing. And it's like, huh, so you did know this at some point in your life. Um, and so, so, you know, all kudos to my mother, but actually in truth, even though it's a much more better story to tell it from my mother's eyes, it was really these editors that just sort of slashed and burned their way through this stuff and forced me to stop, look, and go, oh, that's what they want. Um, and then from that came the realization that when I would talk to the Lions Club or I would talk to the Rotary, because I loved doing that, still do, um, that those are different audiences. They're not my students. They're not my mother, thank God. Um, they, are, they are someone else. So what do they need to know that I think I can convey to them and how to convey to them that piece? Um, and in some ways, teaching is teaching. Um, and, and, and sort of giving talks is, is what it is. Um, but there's an intentionality behind it also that also fr- gets framed into pieces that I will write for the LA Times or whoever. Um, and it's had this reciprocal um, response, which whenever I write one of those things, um, I start to think about what I do in class differently. When I'm talking with my students, I'm thinking, huh, that's interesting wonder what that would look like if it became an essay. And so I've started working with students on, on publications um, last couple of years and uh, have absolutely loved that in part because um, you know, they go off and do different things. That isn't gonna be what their careers are, um, but it's given them and me a chance to have this sort of one-on-one, like if we're gonna publish in that journal, Go look at that journal and let's think about what that requires because that's a different thing than this other thing over here. Um, and I think that's part of what's been very helpful for me is that different audiences need different ways of speaking and that means I need different ways of writing. And that's, that you know has been as much fun as it is to write for my academic audiences and I better say that as a close. Uh, in truth, I reach a lot more people by working on blogs and writing columns for newspapers. And if my job is to speak to a larger audience, then that's part of the job I should be doing.
1: Okay, Char, if we were going to to cover all the different things you've written about, we'd be here all day. So I think uh, we'd better wrap it up here. Well, thanks for the chance. (laughs) We've been talking with uh, Professor of History and Environmental Analysis, Char Miller.
2: Thanks, Char. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Char.
2: Stay safe.
0: And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.